the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, again, we are amazed at how you care for us by sending Jesus to live, to die, to rise, by sending your spirit to work his truth within us, by loving us and giving us this, this book, this Bible that is indeed uh, your word to us. And so we pray that now as we open it, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us. Uh, take away, I pray, uh, any resistance that we have to believing. Uh, enable us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Luke in chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, I want to read verses 36 to 49. Luke chapter 24, please. Hear the word of God. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, just very quickly, let me interrupt myself. Um, The they refers um, to the 11, as they're called, the disciples of Jesus, less Judas at this point, and others who had gathered with them, plus two who had been uh, traveling. And they had been traveling, you can see this in the passage that comes right before this, two who were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Um, and this was after, this was on that Sunday. And um, these two were traveling there. They had been in Jerusalem, well known to the disciples, that must have traveled with them in, their, in the group with them and so forth. But, but uh, uh, they, they had uh, come on that Sunday realizing Jesus had been crucified. And, and now it appears as if they're going back home. Um, they had heard about this resurrection. They had heard about the women having gone to the tomb and all of that. But, uh, but still they were making their way uh, to, um, back to Emmaus. Uh, interestingly, surprisingly to them at least, a man joined them and asked them about what they were talking. And, and they said they were talking about this Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, tell me some more. They were surprised that, that there was anybody in Jerusalem that hadn't heard of what had taken place. But they decided to talk to him. And they, they shared with him about this one Jesus that they had thought was the Christ and yet had been crucified, though some had said, these women had said that the tomb was empty and then this man, this stranger to them, began to speak to them about, about the Christ, about the Messiah, uh, and, and what was spoken of him in the Old Testament. And then after a while, uh, when they got to their destination, um, it appeared as if this stranger was going to go on further. And they said, well, why don't you stay with us? Why don't you have dinner with us? And so he did. And then when they were around the table and he took bread and he blessed it and he gave it to them, they went, ah. Oh. And they knew it was Jesus. And he vanished. And so they immediately got up and then they traveled the seven miles back to uh, Jerusalem and they met up with the 11 and the ones who were there. So that's the they in that passage. And the, these things that they were talking about were the, these things concerning the resurrection of Jesus. So here we go again. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a spirit, thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Notice. Verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen, and thought they saw a spirit. That is, they thought they were seeing a ghost as Jesus was before them. And don't you wonder why? Why were they startled and frightened? They, were, they had been talking about him, and they'd been, they'd been sharing about the fact that, that it appeared as if he had risen. Uh, the women had gone to the tomb. They no, no doubt were sharing about the tomb was empty. Peter and John had gone to the tomb, no doubt sharing. Yes, they looked in. It, it was empty. Uh, even, even they had said that Peter had seen him, and, and hadn't they talked about that? When the women went to the tomb, the angel said to them, Hey, he's risen, just like he said. And they remembered, yes, he had said this. Because you see, Jesus had been very deliberate about why he was going to Jerusalem. He had told them on various occasions why. He said, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. But on the third day, I'll rise. And yet he did. And, 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 and so we wonder, don't we, why, why is it that they were so... So surprised at that point that, that there he was. He had said it. They had been talking about it. That these men on the road to Emmaus said, we saw him. We walked with him. And now he shows up and they're startled and frightened. And why? Well, wouldn't you be? I mean, I mean they, they had seen this guy get crucified and killed. And now there he is standing in front of them. No matter what they had been talking about, they had no category in their brain, really, for this really being true. There wasn't any thought in those days, really, of, of that kind of resurrection. Oh, they had seen Lazarus be brought back to life. But, but this was way different. This was a resurrection. This was a body that was perfect. This is a body that had been beaten, but now was eternal. This was a body uh, that was a resurrected body in the sense that it would live forever. Uh, and Lazarus just got raised in the good old body that would die again. Very different, you see. Here he was, this resurrection of course in in their culture the greeks had really no interest in a resurrection it would be unwelcome it was the the body was that was the problem it was the soul that needed to be unencumbered by it so so the resurrection was no big deal no interest to them and 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 even among the jews of the day there was a a group called the sadducees and and they didn't believe in a resurrection uh, at all they they believed this was pretty much it and So that's why that particular group of Jewish leaders uh, got so close to the Roman authorities because they figured if this is it, we might as well make the best out of a bad situation. And even though there are oppressors, uh, let's make sure that we're in with them. So they believed in no future hope of, of resurrection, dare I say. They were very sad, you see. Now, sorry. 
That's about a once every four year little joke there. So I mark it down. I won't do this until 2016. Uh, but, but then the, the general view was yes, there'll be a resurrection of the dead, but it would be it would be the end of the age. It wouldn't be now. Nobody would happen. It wouldn't happen to anybody now. And when it happened, it would happen to everybody. It wouldn't just be one guy. And so in their minds, think about it. No matter how many times somebody tells you, even if it's Jesus. He's going to be raised from the dead. You're going to see him again. What could that really mean? Wouldn't it take a bit of getting used to? You'd have to show up on various occasions to prove that point. Yes, I mean, you have to do various things. This is really me. This is really me. It would take a while to be startled in the midst of that because, you see, they had seen him die. If the Romans were good at anything... They were really good at crucifixion. They were really good at making certain that people died when they were crucified. In fact, you might remember that since it was the Passover time, the Jews went to the Romans and said, it's really unsightly, unseemly. It's really offensive to us to have dead bodies around uh, hanging there on these crosses during Passover. Is there any way you can make sure that everybody gets dead and take them down before all this begins? And so they began to do something which was common to do to crucified folks, and that is that they would break their legs so that they could no longer push up, so they could no longer breathe, and thus they would die more quickly. And so they came along to do that, but when they noticed Jesus, they realized he was already dead. To make sure they stuck a spear in his side, out came water and blood. He was really dead. They knew that. Those who were preparing Jesus' body for burial took him and did the common thing which is they packed him in spices in a sense hundred pounds or so of all of this and and wrapped him and so forth as he would be uh and to put him in this cold tomb they knew he was dead and now to think of seeing him seeing him would be startling even frightening at that point in time but you see there there he was Now, this notion of the resurrection of Jesus, you see, is crucial in Christianity. As we read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we we read together responsively, Paul said, I received this of first importance. In other words, when when, when I I met himself, he did the risen Christ. When he met Christ, he knew he was alive. When he spent time with the other disciples, the other apostles, and and they reviewed this gospel, uh, when Ananias, that one who came to him, taught him... uh, What was of first importance? What did they tell him? What was necessary to know about all of this? Well, most certainly to know that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. And on the third day, he rose again. Because what's crucial here about Christianity isn't simply a new philosophy of life. It isn't isn't new moral teaching necessarily. Oh, Jesus did that. But not new moral teaching. Oh, he gave us the Sermon on the Mount. But that was corrective. It wasn't new, new. What was unique here is who he was and what he did. Christianity is first and foremost an event. The gospel, good news, is first and foremost something that happened. And if it didn't happen, that is, Jesus didn't die for our sins, didn't rise again, then this Jesus is just another guy. But if in fact, 
what he did is really true, that he really died for the sins of sinners and really rose again from the dead. Thus, he being the son of God then, then everything changes. It's all it's all new, you see. It, it's, it, it's all what we, what we need. In fact, I think thinking of this resurrection of Jesus is easier for us than it was for them. It's easier for us because we've had 2,000 years of discussion about this resurrection of Jesus. For them, it was just happening new. And we've debated it and discussed it, and some have believed it and some not. There's books written about it. All of that, you see. And and so in one sense, we're more accustomed to be thinking about this resurrection of Jesus than even they were. Jesus talked to them about it, and and they had thought about it some, I guess, wondering what he really meant by that, and even in the discussion on that night. But but still, we've talked about it a lot. For them, it was just, just happening at that moment in time. But it was that thing, that resurrection, that sparked really, really everything uh, in that, and, and we've been able to see the, the great spread of the church. George Ladd, a Baptist theologian, in a book with an ambitious title called A Theology of the New Testament, wrote this. He said, In short, the earliest Christianity did not consist of a new doctrine about God, nor of a new hope of immortality, nor even of new theological insights about the nature of salvation. It consisted, this Christianity. It consisted of the recital of a great event or a mighty act of God, the raising of Christ from the dead. Any new theological emphases are inevitable meanings of this redemptive act of God in raising the crucified Jesus from the dead. Again, in short, he says, Christianity didn't consist of a new doctrine about God or a new hope of immortality, a new theological insight or, or about the nature of salvation. But it was this recital of a great event. People telling over and over again, this is what happened. That event, that mighty act of God, raising Christ from the dead. And he said, therefore, any new theological emphases that we have now are inevitable meanings of this redemptive act of God in raising the crucified Jesus from the dead. It's of first importance. Read through the New Testament and you'll find over a hundred references to this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You'll find it uh, as as an announcement of the event itself. We find it as the theme of of a concept that's being laid out in the scripture. We find it as a rationale for some point being made. We find it as a modifier to the expression Jesus Christ, comma, raised from the dead it's it's all throughout we we go through the gospels it's the climax of each gospel we we go through the the book of acts we find that it it's 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 central in the sermons and the preaching of these apostles when peter preaches on the day of pentecost he doesn't speak to us about the moral attributes of jesus his compassion his mercy per se he said listen he died for our sins he was raised therefore repent be baptized receive the gift of the holy spirit this has happened enter in in fact when a new apostle was being picked to replace judas one of the qualifications was that he had to have been a witness to the resurrection, like the others. 
In fact, even as the Apostle Paul comes along, it's interesting that he too was a witness to the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. He saw him thus in our responsive reading from 1 Corinthians 15 a little while ago. He refers to himself as to one who was untimely born. That is, I wasn't there at the moment. I didn't see the risen Christ when they first did, but, but, but later I did. I was untimely called to be an apostle. It was crucial in the midst of that. They continued to speak of the resurrection of Jesus, even though it brought oppression to them. It was central to them. If Jesus hadn't died and risen, then he would just be another guy. A bit eccentric, rather sad guy, but just another guy. But here he was, raised from the dead. What else could explain the transformation in these disciples' lives. I mean, here they were cowards. Here they were running. Here they were fearful. Here they were denying Jesus even in the part of Peter. Here here they were getting back to the normal aspects of their life after the crucifixion of Jesus. What made them then be these bold, courageous men who are willing to give their lives for this gospel other than the fact that they knew it was true and they knew it was true because they had seen Jesus. It changed for them everything. That's when Paul writes, I read this to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There was a discussion being had in the church in Corinth whether or not there was a resurrection from the dead. Not just Jesus's, but, but anybody's was there resurrection. And Paul's argument, oh yes, there's resurrection from the dead. Because if there isn't, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then we're all sunk. He said, our preaching is in vain. We should be called liars for misrepresenting God. Our faith cannot save us. We are still in our sins. Everything is wrapped up in this event of Jesus being raised from the dead. So here Jesus is. He's he's in this room with them. And what is fascinating to me is this expression. It's in verse 41 of Luke 24. This expression in verse 41. And he says, And while they still disbelieved for joy. Now I remember when I first came upon that 100 years ago, a long time ago, I pulled out every Bible I had. And I said, the one I'm reading, it, it can't be right. It must say they believed because of the joy of seeing Jesus. It must be that. It couldn't be they disbelieved for joy. Those words don't go together. So I pulled all the Bibles, other versions off my shelf, and they all said the same thing. Then I went to my Greek New Testament. It said the same thing. And, and then I went to every commentary I had on the Gospel of Luke, and that they said the same thing. And I said, whatever could that mean? Why would they disbelieve for joy? Wouldn't you think their joy in seeing Jesus would cause them to believe. And I began to think, hmm, I think I know. It's like a kid at Christmas. You know, a kid really wants something. I don't know what kids want these days because I can't play it or put it together, whatever they want. But, but whatever it is, whatever a kid really wants, you see, and they have their heart set on it. But, but they had their hearts set on something last year they didn't get. And so, well, they would bring them great joy to have this. 
they can't quite believe that it's actually going to happen. Or a student taking a test. After the test, you really think you did well, but you thought you did well on the last one too and you didn't do so well. And it would bring you great joy to really have done well, but you can't quite embrace the fact that I really did well. Or a job interview. You thought, oh, that was great. That interview went really, really, really well. But, but I thought the last one went really well too, and I didn't get that job. So I would bring me great joy for this to be true. It would mean everything to me. I, I can't really embrace it. Or you go out on a date, and you think, ah, this is the one. Oh, it would bring me so much joy if this were the one. This, I think this is really the one, but hmm, I thought the last three were the one. So I can't, I can't quite embrace the fact. Do you realize that these disciples of Jesus wanted beyond anything else for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah? It meant everything. But they had seen him crucified. And so you get the feeling, you get the sense at that moment in time that this disbelief was a bit different than a previous disbelief. When, when the women came back from seeing the empty tomb, they came back. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 11, they, they told the apostles about that. But, but Luke records their response like this. He says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. In other words, they didn't have a category in their brain for that. How could this really be true? Uh, pardon me, but in that culture, they would have thought it's just the women. And so why should I believe this? And so... But this is different. There he is. They know he's alive. They see him. And yet still, there's this... Hmm. Oz Guinness, a, uh, I don't know what he is, sociologist, I believe, of some note, wrote a book a long time ago called In Two Minds, The Dilemma of Doubt and How to Resolve It. So let me read you a long quote, and I could paraphrase this, but he says it so much better. Listen. It says, what a distinctive and intriguing variety of doubt this is that is disbelieving for joy. The average doubt is more like those mentioned earlier in the story, verse 11, which I just read you, where the disciples refused to believe that Jesus had risen when they heard the first accounts of that, that empty tomb was empty, or that tomb was empty. They had no first evidence, so they dismissed the initial report as an idle tale. But in doubt or not, at least they hurried to find out the truth for themselves. It was not that they believed and then doubted, but they refused to believe without sufficient evidence. They wanted to make sure for themselves. But this later doubt is quite different, and there was not the same excuse. More than half a day had gone by, and the evidence to confirm the first accounts had been flowing in from all sides. They heard it from the women, from the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and from Simon Peter. Before Jesus appeared, they had already come to the conclusion, it's true, the Lord is risen. But suddenly now that Jesus was actually right in front of them, and their faith was not just a tacit agreement, but a demanding reality, they disbelieved for joy. That is the uniqueness of this doubt. They disbelieved for joy. What they were seeing was the one thing in all the world they wanted most. 
That was precisely the trouble. They wanted it so they wanted so much to believe it and then discover and then to discover it was false would have been profoundly disillusioning. So instead they preferred the safety of doubts rather than the risk of disappointment. Can you explain this disbelieving for joy any other way? There was no denying that Jesus was alive. He was there as large as life. It was quite impossible to pass it off any longer as an idle tale or an early morning fantasy. It was not as if these men were deep-dyed skeptics or modern philosophers trained in the rigorous procedures of critical doubt. They were down-to-earth men accustomed to dealing in the hard currency of the facts of life. Men who lived naturally in a world where seeing is believing. Yet for some reason, they rejected the evidence of their own eyes and ears and insisted on disbelieving by doubting. They were taking out an insurance policy to cover the possible pain and eventual disappointment. There they were. In one sense, it was too good to be true. They disbelieved then for joy. Everything in them wanted them to believe. But, Guinness goes on. There were grown men whose lives had been far from sheltered and reserved, yet the experience of the crucifixion had been far more harrowing than any of them cared to face again. Any hopes that they might have tried to salvage from the wreckage of those fateful days must have looked forlorn. All around them lay the debris of shattered dreams. Hour after hour, over and over again, they must have rerun the events in their minds. But at the end of every possible train of thought was the stark finality of a bloody cross. And then at last, the gaping wound which was their memory must have slowly begun to heal. Their thoughts must have started to turn naturally toward resuming their lives. It was then that Jesus appeared, and he caught them on the raw before the sedative passing time had dulled the pain. He stood before them, the sum of all they wanted, but for the sheer joy of what it would mean if true, they refused to believe in case it might not be. What they were saying in their doubt is that it was too good to be true. And this way they adroitly protected the wound and refused to risk opening it. The one fact that they wanted became one fact too much. And they disbelieved for joy. Maybe true for some. See, in this faith that we call Christianity, we speak of family, and you may say, but to enter into the family of God, I know family, I've been burned by family. Or forgiveness, we speak of forgiveness. You say, well, I, I know of forgiveness. I've been burned by those I thought had forgiven me and, and, and now I've been so hurt by others. Do I really need to forgive? I, I can't go there, can't enter that. If that's what this is about, I can't really go there. And yet the deep desire of the heart is for connection, to be accepted, to be in family, to be in community. And yet there's just something that says no. Too good to be true. Or to to be forgiven of that sin. Everybody has that sin. Or those sins. They're the ones that come to our mind every time someone mentions the word confession. They're the ones that come to mind every time we think church. They're the ones that come to mind when we open the Bible. It's that sin. It's that one that plagues me. Uh, and I wonder, really, is there forgiveness from that? 
We've been told all our lives, it's really up to us. And now I'm being told it's about grace. It's about, it's about this free gift. Can I really accept that? Is that really fair? Is that really right? I, I've been told that I, I need to do this myself. How, how can I now depend upon another? And, and I remember the times I have depended upon others and I've been let down. And is this just one more time like that? And I've heard of churches where things haven't always gone well. I have those Memories, and so is this just another one? Is that one of those? <sighs> it's really what I want, it's really what I would love to be true, but is it too good to be true? Can I really, really, can I really embrace it? Hmm. See, it was that thing the disciples knew that if this were really true, if this resurrection were really true, then everything would be true that Jesus had said, everything that had been true that the Bible had said, everything was true that, that who he was and what he had done. And, and, he, and they knew then that if this was true, that if Jesus was really raised from the dead, then he was who he claimed to be, which was indeed the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, and, and that in his coming then, this new covenant that had been promised by God would be true that by faith in him God would be their God and they would be their people in other words they would be accepted by God joined together with him reconciled to him they would know that it was really true and they would know God and be known by him they would have access to him that he would speak to them by his word and they would understand and know him. They would know that if Jesus were raised from the dead and thus really the Son of God, then there would be, in fact, sins forgiven as the promise was made. I'll remember your sins no more. And of course, we know that when God says he'll remember our sins, it doesn't mean that he's going to get a lobotomy, that he's going to forget things. When God says he's not going to remember them, it means he's not going to act upon them as they deserve. All that being true, you see. And that was the desire, really, of their own hearts as, as real men, as real people. See, there's a longing in us, suppressed often, but a longing in us to be loved and to be loved by God. There's a longing in us to be reconciled to him. There's a longing in us to know him. There's a longing in us to be forgiven and have the guilt that however we suppress it pops up from time to time. Sometimes very often, sometimes affects us in all kinds of ways. There's a longing in us for that to be lifted, for us to be forgiven, for the weight of that to be taken from us. There's a longing in us for the security to know that there really is someone in charge of this store. It's really somebody watching out, really somebody ruling and reigning, and that somebody ruling and reigning is really someone who loves and someone who's wise and someone who's powerful, more powerful than anything else, who can really then make that which is good to happen. There's a longing in us to know that the sufferings and the difficulties that we face are purposeful. And really have meaning and are just simply not arbitrary and cruel. There's a longing in us to know that 
even though we will die, yet we will live. And that life that we will live will be a life that's good. There's a longing in us to see righteousness rule and reign. See, all that's within us. And that's the gospel, you see. If Christ has been raised from the dead, then that is all true. And the question for us, after living the lives that we've lived and and experiencing what we've experienced, because we embrace that, is it too good to be true or is it? Oh, it's good. And it's true. Because Jesus has risen indeed from the dead. The tomb was empty. There he was. He showed himself to others. He ascended and rules and reigns. We see the impact of his ruling and reigning in the gospel upon the lives of people, upon even our, our own lives. And he says, continue now to believe, continue to, to embrace. Uh, the Paul writes to the church in Rome this, in Romans in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, this was it. This resurrection of Jesus was God's declaration to say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He was declared with power to be the very Son of God. He said, there it is. And knowing that, you see, then we know that as the Son of God, he rules and reigns, and he rules and reigns over all things. And the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1, he does that for the sake of his church. He rules and reigns over everything for the good of his people and for the glory of God. He's doing that even now. And even now as he rules and reigns, he's the very guarantee of our salvation. In Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25, we read this concerning Jesus, the author of Hebrews, speaking of former priests, Old Testament priests who died. He says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever Consequently, or that is to say, because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Even now, Jesus, as he's ruling and reigning, is standing in heaven on our behalf, interceding for us. He knows everything going on, and if ever an accusation comes, To him about us, he intercepts it and he deals with it and he says, I died for that, they're mine. And so he guarantees our salvation and of course guarantees our forgiveness of sins. Romans in chapter 4 verse 25, it speaks of Jesus like this, Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, raised for our justification, meaning that when he was raised, there was a declaration of God that we are justified, we're forgiven, we're righteous in his sight. The amazing thing about Jesus is that when he died, he didn't die for his own sins. 
He died for ours. And once he had paid the penalty for our sins, then he was free to go. And so he rose. And when he rose, he said, it's done, it's finished. I, I, I paid, I'm released because I have paid the debt for your sin and now I'm here to report about it. So we know by his resurrection that our sins really are forgiven. Dare I say to you, that sin, it's forgiven if you believe in Jesus. That sin, the one you can't ever forget about, that one that plagues you, that one that you desire release from, both the guilt and its stranglehold. He said, oh, that's it. And you see, now our suffering has purpose. It has purpose because he's ruling and reigning in such a, a way that even when difficulties come into our lives, he's the sovereign one who ordains that that difficulty comes. And he ordains it because he has a purpose for it. And that purpose is one that is good. You know this verse, I trust. It's one of your fighter verses. It's one that you have memorized in Romans In chapter 8, where the apostle uh, writes this, verse 28, and he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So he's working all things for good. That's his purpose in these things. We can't always see it. We can't always know it. But we can trust him because he's the sovereign Lord who's risen and rules and reigns. When the disciples of Jesus first saw his scars, they saw them while he was being crucified. And the scars were devastating. They would think, that's the most horrible thing I've ever seen. But do you know what? The most wonderful thing that they saw afterwards was the scars. What was the difference? The difference was afterwards they knew the purpose of the scars. And you see, the scars that we receive, the difficulties of life that come, the suffering that we experience in the context of this life will one day be our glory. Because we'll look upon them and we'll know that's why. Everything was bound up in Jesus rising. Our own resurrection, guaranteed because he was the first fruit of, of those who will, who, who will die, as the scriptures tell us. Thus, thus, we'll follow along with him. We know that because he was risen, so will we rise and will rise to glory and will live forever in the very presence of God as Jesus is as well. This resurrection of Jesus It isn't at all too good to be true. Oh, it's very good. There isn't anything better. It really does satisfy the very longings of our souls. But it is so good that it must be true. Because it's the promise of God. And it's the very work of God. And it's evidenced by Jesus being raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
we take great comfort and confidence in the fact that Jesus has indeed risen. We know that you've exalted him, that he is at your right hand and ruling and reigning over all things for your glory and for the good of his people. But as he rules, we know that he's interceding and as he's interceding not as one who doesn't know us, but one who sympathizes with our weakness. For in his life, he was tempted in every way as we yet without sin. So God, we come through him knowing that we are accepted by God because of what Christ has done. Thus through him, we come to a throne, the very rule of God. It's a throne, but it's a throne where grace rules and mercy is granted that we might be helped in times of our need. And so we call upon you as those who need. Call us to live holy lives, lives that honor and reflect you. And yet we live in a world that tempts us to go our own way, the ways of others. The evil one reinforces such temptations. There's still residing in us a desire to follow other ways. So we pray that you would strengthen us, God, and enable us to resist these temptations so that we may follow after you and you alone. Father, we find weakness and difficulty in relationships, in marriage, family, friendships. Pray that you would heal wounds and give us grace to love, to restore relationships. God, many are experiencing weakness in body. There's sickness that slows us, disease that debilitates and threatens to take our lives. Father, bring healing, we pray. Bring an awareness of your presence through these times. And may our faith grow strong. May whatever suffering we experience bring good as you've promised. Father, we pray for Judy Doolin. Their surgery coming up on the 19th in Denver. We pray for our friend Jerry Bridges who's having surgery on the 12th. So Father, we pray for them that you would grant grace, give them strength, heal them. Father, some are grieving because of the loss of those they love. Provide comfort, we pray for Lavana McAllister and Lorinda Hartzler and their families on the death of their father this past week. We pray for the Kovar family as they grieve Jim's father's death. Be with them. Some are lonely. Bring friendship, we pray, and companionship. Bring an abiding sense of your presence in the lives of those who are lonely, Father. And bring friends. Some live with the fear of future. Give, give an awareness of your rule over all things, your wisdom in all matters, your love for us that we might have peace. Father, as a church, may we continue to speak forth the things of Christ. And may many hear and believe. So God, we lay our very lives before you. And we ask these things and so much more in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you, there'll be elders available to pray down front here after the service, so please uh, take advantage of that. The response to the benediction this morning is that Easter response, Christ is risen. He is risen, risen indeed, after which we will sing. So please receive this as the benediction of God. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Holy 